Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lynn Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, October 26th, 2020. On the show today, news, listener questions, and I go on a rant about California. And in our main segment, Jim tells us about the history of the Wonders of Life Pavilion. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that you should keep people close and love them for what they are on the inside which is a bunch of spare organs that you might need someday. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Oh, is Hannah aware of this? <laughs> There's a reason her, her middle name is Blood Donor, Jim. Ah, well. <laughs> okay, all right. I figured that was, a, that was a good Halloween sort of uh, intro there, right? Okay, keep going. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right, let's do a shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Spirit Imagineer, Kevin R. and Tubby Daddy, and longtime subscribers Dan S2514, Christopher S72, and Justin H. Jim, these are the folks who came up with the first three themes of sports, music, and movies for Disney's All-Star Resorts. Other ideas they considered were All-Star Cooking and All-Star Television, but apparently a giant fiberglass rutabaga and Joni and Chachi frightened both children and adults. So those ideas were never used. True story. And I mentioned Joni and Chachi Jim, so you can riff on John Stamos right now. Oh. Did, you, did you, you saw the news, right? Yes, yes. The Wisconsin <laughs> Democrats Happy Days reunion. Did they actually right. go through with that? I think it's coming up. I think it's the 29th. Chachi isn't going to like this. <laughs> exactly. The thing that I, I thought was funniest about it mm. was imagine you're – a former TV star, mm -hmm. right? And you're a male former TV star. And you want to hold out on a reunion for better terms, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say that, you know, everybody in the cast of whatever your popular show was, you know, wants to get back together. But you're holding out, you know, hoping that the fact that you're not going to be included is a little bit of leverage. And then out of nowhere, John Stamos says, I've got some time on my calendar. <laughs> like, like, how do you compete with John Stamos? <laughs> Yeah. Every uh, everybody else has to look at that now and say, "I'm in." Yeah, just just don't call Stamos. I'm in. Okay. Well, well <laughs> speaking of of the Wisconsin Democrats, did you get to see the Princess Bride reunion that they did about four weeks ago, five weeks ago? No. And I understand if you want to break up with me after this. I've only seen that movie once. I it's, like it, but I've only okay. seen it once. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> if you love the Princess Bride the way Nancy and I do. They did a wonderful job. In fact, Mandy Patinkin was almost a master class in how to use Zoom to give a great performance. He was as good for the Zoom thing as he was in the original film. And also a special oh. shout out to our pal Josh Gad, who stepped in for Andre the Giant and did this wonderful homage to that performance. It was great, great fun. And that's also Available for viewing through the Wisconsin Democrats, and now we got this Happy Days thing coming. So, oh, I forgot Josh Gad too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, between Stamos and Gad, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're basically as soon as the phone rings, you're picking it up and saying, "I'm in." Don't call anyone else. There you go. Wow. Oh, good to know. Yep. All right. All right, uh, Jim. Let's do the news, folks. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast, for a worry-free travel experience every time. Book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, first big bit of news out of Walt Disney World is that All-Star Movies is set to reopen February 9th, 2021. And Disney announced this along with a hotel discount that goes into the spring. Did you see this? 
Yeah. They're assuming things are going to get better. Well, they're assuming that too. But the uh, the obvious question that I have here is, uh, so Movies has just under 2,000 rooms. Coronado mm-hmm. Springs just reopened. That's 2,400 rooms. Mm-hmm. Art of Animation opens this coming Sunday. That's another 2,000 rooms. So, you know, give or take 6,300 rooms total. Mm-hmm. Here's my question to you, Jim. Where are we going to put 6,300 more families in the parks? First and foremost, are they all going to go to the parks? Aren't some of them going to go to Disney Springs? Aren't some of them going to be, well, Art of Animation, they just announced they're closing the Big Blue Pool right. for big-time rehab. So that's the thing people need to remember about Disney is it it can absorb a lot more people. But you're right. You know, you're splitting 6,300 more families across four theme parks and a shopping district and hoping some of them hang out by the pool back at the hotel or are going off to do other things in Orlando. Yeah. So 6,000 families, you know, figure two, three people per, mm-hmm. that's, you know, between twelve and 18,000 people yep. spread out over four parks in Disney Springs. Mm-hmm. It's a couple more thousand people per park, but I'm not entirely sure the smaller parks can handle a couple thousand more people per day. Uh, I have to give a shout out here to my friend, uh, Matthew, who, mm-hmm. uh, who pointed out that Disney was testing late last week after the parks closed a data feed for virtual queues for Jungle Cruise and Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run in My Disney Experience, hmm. which is interesting. So I'm I'm not entirely sure how it would work. Mm-hmm. Disneyland Paris is doing virtual queues where if the line for a ride extends past the proper end of the line, right? Mm-hmm. So if it starts spilling out into you know walkways and whatever, mm-hmm. they immediately switch over to virtual queues. And there you would get... You could hold one virtual queue reservation at a time. So imagine like old paper fast pass where you could have one at a time. Mm-hmm. It's like that, but virtual now. That would alleviate some of the you know the longer line. The question that I, I have is in terms of like group behavior dynamics is this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now you've got a virtual queue reservation for Jungle Cruise. Wouldn't you just go get in line at Pirates of the Caribbean? That's what happened back with FastPass when we, they were doing the initial tests in 2000 or there. Right. It would seem like it would only work, like virtual queuing would only work if you also capped mm-hmm. how many people could get in the other non-virtual lines, right? Because let's say, let's say you get a virtual queue for Jungle Cruise, mm-hmm. right? And then you, you walk over to Pirates of the Caribbean and, and that line is, you know, starting to spell out into the walkway. If Disney said, look, you know, we're not taking any other people in this line until it shrinks a little bit, the only lines that you could get in at that point would be the lines where the attraction wasn't at its capacity yet. So that would work, right? That's basically, you know, shifting people around Mm -hmm. to the less used areas of the park. That makes sense. Just stopping people from getting in lines. Have we figured out what the schedule is for the character cavalcades yet? The little spontaneous mini parades that go out? Is it hourly? Is it I was told originally that they were going to start like at the Magic Kingdom, for example, mm-hmm. you know, when the park opens at nine, I think the first one was scheduled at 10, 15 mm-hmm. or thereabouts. And I think that makes sense because, you know, for the first hour when people are essentially streaming down Main Street, mm-hmm. you don't want them to have to dodge Tinkerbell. Oh, no, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Or maybe you do. I, mean, mm-hmm. maybe, I don't know. Maybe you're like me and you're like, that might be entertaining in and of itself. Let's, <laughs> let's watch Grandma jump out of the way in her, in her walker. Right? Okay. Uh, that, yeah. could be, that could be funny, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I think it's you know ten fifteen when they uh, when the first rush of people is over and uh, they can push the crowds 
to either side of Main Street to mm-hmm. get the floats down. The other parks, I think it's similar, like, you know, 75 minutes after the park opens, mm-hmm. start seeing them. Yeah. You've stood there. You've watched the ops first hammering on their handheld counter. <laughs> I have. You got to wonder <laughs> at this point, have they determined how many people in the park will stop to watch that? And in this new world with this low attendance, do the, the same rules apply? You know, the whole notion of you have to get in 10 attractions a day to feel like you're getting your value? I think so. Because I think the people are looking at that mm-hmm. and saying, if I'm going to wear a mask mm-hmm. and we're not going to have character greetings and we're not going to have parades and we're not going to have fire, fireworks, mm-hmm. then I really need to get in mm-hmm. every ride that I could possibly think of okay. in the parks. That seems to be the trade-off that people are accepting. Mm-hmm. There's so much of this that is the stuff we know and then the unknown. We have our known unknowns and unknown unknowns. <laughs> right, Donald Rumsfeld. There we go. I right. just feel like in this situation, so much of this is terra incognito. And just to bring it full circle to these, these 6,000 new families that Disney wouldn't be doing this if they didn't feel confident, okay, we can absorb this. Right. And I will say that 6,000 more families by, you know, around February 9th Mm -hmm. means we're likely to see Remy's Ratatouille Adventure open at Epcot prior to that. And so our friends over at WDB Magic mentioned that ride testing's begun Mm -hmm. at Remy's. But Jim, isn't there, there's a debate that I think is still ongoing within Disney as to whether they open the attraction in 2020 and say, please come to our parks, or whether they wait until 2021 and say, this is our big advertising push for the first half of the year. Remember, also what Disney has in its pocket is Cosmic Rewind, which just this week I was hearing that maybe that's 2022. I think so, yeah. So Tron, we heard Tron might get pushed to 2022. Mm -hmm. Cosmic Rewind 2022 as well. Yeah, I mean, basically what they're, what they're doing here is they're looking at, I think, how can we save money? Mm-hmm. And yet still, when, when, the re- when the economic recovery is more fully started, how can we provide people a ride or attraction reason to come to the parks? And in this case, it's going to be you know, one for the Magic Kingdom, one for Epcot. Remember, we've been talking for like two and three years solid about the equivalent of D-Day level planning for Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary, which has been completely blown out of the water. But yet there are still things trickling in. Did you see the state of Florida is offering the special 50th anniversary license plate? I saw that. Yeah, you have to be Florida resident and you get a a Walt Disney World license plate. That's tempting because my registration's up soon. This was one of the ones Disney couldn't tap the brakes on because they had the state involved. And it's like, look. We've got all these prisoners making license plates. (laughs) That's exactly. We've been working on this all summer. Sorry, pal. This is coming. But on the other hand, (laughs) if you you look at the shop at Disneyland that got set up, where you backdoor into DCA and can buy all of the Halloween merch that – they have no choice. This is where it's got to come out because you can't get into either of the parks and give it a week and you're going to see all the Christmas stuff start to come in there. It's, I, heard, yeah. I heard too that there were cast members who had started to put up Halloween stuff in anticipation of possible reopening. And then a couple of weeks ago when that was looked like it was going to be delayed, they took down the Halloween stuff and started putting up Christmas stuff. And... and <laughs> And so let's so let's talk about California. There we uh, go. Issuing its, there okay. we go. Nice segue. Mm-hmm. So California issued this week, Jim, its reopening guidelines for the theme parks. Uh, so 
California has guidelines for businesses with four tiers that determine which kinds of businesses are open uh, in the widespread pandemic phase, which is purple, mm-hmm. which is more than seven cases per 100,000 residents. There are uh, numerous restrictions, and that's where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the next level down from that is uh, substantial or red with between four and seven new cases per 100,000 residents. Then there's moderate or the orange level, which is one to 3.9 cases per 100,000 residents. And the best phase is minimal, which is yellow, with fewer than one case per 100,000 residents. So California has around 39 and a half million people. Like I said, there's currently over 700 new cases per day. So they're in the widespread category. And so Disneyland can't under uh, the California guidelines, they can't reopen until California gets to under 395 new cases per day. Jim, did I get that right? You did. You did. All right. So I look at this from a numbers perspective, right? And here's the first part of the problem. I see. There's no way California is going to get under 395 new cases per day anytime in 2020. And I don't think in 2021. So if you look at like smallpox, right? We've achieved herd immunity from smallpox two ways. One is nearly universal vaccinations. I think everybody has to get a smallpox vaccination. And the few number of people who don't are basically protected by everyone else who does. That's literally the concept of herd immunity. And the vaccine itself is something like 95% effective. So highly effective vaccine given to almost everyone Mm -hmm. gets us immunity from smallpox. But we've had decades to refine the efficacy of that vaccine. And we haven't had that with COVID. So Mm -hmm. the estimates that I'm seeing for the COVID vaccine the initial efficacy is going to be hopefully somewhere around 70%. Again, that hasn't been determined yet, but that seems like the consensus estimate that everyone's sort of landing on. So at an efficacy rate of 70%, that's going to require anywhere from 75% to 100% of the population to take it, along with other safety precautions like masks and social distancing. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. 75 to 100% of the population has to take it. The problem is, is it's going to take a very long time to manufacture, distribute, and administer that many vaccines easily into the second half of 2021. So everything that I've heard says that the very beginning of second quarter 2021, so like April 1, you should be able to walk into a CVS and get a shot. That doesn't mean that everyone is going to do it, Mm -hmm. right? Because we've seen surveys in the news that say something like 30% of Americans simply aren't going to take the vaccine once it becomes available, they're going to wait and see what happens, which I understand that. But setting the reasoning for that aside, right? Let's just assume that 30% of Americans aren't going to do it, mm-hmm. right? California is never going to get to its under 395 cases if we're at a 70% uh, vaccine efficacy mm-hmm. and 30% of the population is not going to take it. The numbers just don't add up. Supposedly, what's factoring into Newsom's thinking here, do you remember the measles outbreak? At Disneyland, December 2014. Yeah, and that was because people people weren't vaccinating their kids. No, this is it exactly. And it, <laughs> it's, it's the notion of the physical setup of Disneyland coupled with California having more than a share of folks who are anti-vaxxers. No, that I, I completely agree. That's what it is, right? Uh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is fine, right? Mm. I, I get that. And, and I'm a progressive, mm. as my friend Phil says, uh, a liberal. Mm -hmm. In California, like I believe California leads this country forward in any number 
of social and economic good things. Like mm-hmm. I literally believe California Uber all is, right? Mm-hmm. I get that the safety of its citizens is at the top of California's highest priorities. However, California hasn't explained how the workers and the business owners who are affected by this are going to do for money for the next 18 months, right? So California provides up to 70% of worker pay through the end of 2020 in its unemployment. But not many working families can afford a long-term pay cut of 30%. So where's that money coming from? I would be fine, Mm. right? If California said, look, we're going to close the parks until 2022 and we're going to pay you like the UK does 80% of your your pay, right? Mm. The feds might be able to kick in some money there, right? And everyone would be made whole. I can kind of sort of see my way to that, Mm. but that's not what's happening, right? And one of the reasons is that California, like most states, has a balanced budget requirement in California, there's a clause that allows deficit spending in the case of fiscal emergencies, but California hasn't yet declared mm-hmm. a fiscal emergency, I think, uh, and that would help. The other thing besides California is Disney did not step up here, right? They laid off 28,000 people, and I don't think they needed to, right? So they had the ability to take care of their employees. They had funding, right? They, Disney has access to billions of dollars, mm-hmm. and they didn't take care of the employees, right? We've you saw Jim the uh, the news was it last week or the week before that Disney was thinking about reallocating some of its three billion dollar annual dividend to produce more TV shows for Disney Plus. Yep, yep, saw that. Okay, that's a corporate choice, mm-hmm. right? It's a choice to say we're going to fire twenty eight thousand people and we're going to make more TV shows for Disney Plus. By the way, one of the things that inspired this rant mm-hmm. is the CNBC article that said Disney was, and I quote, forced to lay off 28,000 people in the same article yeah. that said, hey, they're going to they're gonna take some of the $3 billion dividend and produce more shows for Disney+. Plus." Like, forced isn't the right word. It was a choice mm-hmm. by management to do mm-hmm. it, right? So I ran through the numbers because I know some of our listeners like doing the numbers, right? So let's, let's assume that Disney doesn't use part of its $3 billion annual dividend, which, by the way, it has suspended right now. Fair Mm -hmm. enough. Okay. And they don't use cash on hand and they don't issue new stock or they don't sell assets because God forbid. Mm -hmm. Right. And let's assume that they set aside a billion dollars for those 28,000 employees that works out to around $36,700 for a year. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think Disney said something like three quarters of these people or two thirds were part-time cast members. 36, seven sounds like a reasonable estimate to take care of everyone. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Disney's already tapped 18.2 18.2 billion in debt in three rounds earlier this year. And that debt comes due in anywhere from six to 40 years. And Disney paid interest rates of 3.35 to 4.7% for those. So if you took the middle of that 4% and you added $1 billion in debt for 30 years, it would have cost Disney $4.8 million per month or $57.6 million per year. Okay, $57.6 million a year sounds like a lot of money until we realize that Bob Iger by himself got $65 million in compensation in 2018. So what I'm pointing out here is Disney to help 28,000 people for a year, they would have had to spend slightly less money than they paid that one guy one time, right? Mm-hmm. That, that does not sound to me in the overall scheme of things like that's a very large risk. And there's no, there's no guarantee that the markets would have viewed this negatively. There's a lot of research that says that companies who 
align charitable donations with corporate interests tend to do better stock price wise mm-hmm. than other companies. And not for nothing, but that would have been a huge publicity, but like good PR story. If Disney came out and said, look, families of America, we're going to set aside a billion dollars to help these 28,000 families get through this. In return, if you have the chance to visit a theme park, a Disney theme park over the next couple of years, it would really help out. Who, who doesn't respond to that? Right? That's literally, that's the market pitch right there. You get some of the cast members, you put them in front of the castle, and you have them tell the story. With some good lighting in the morning, some balloons, you know, maybe some characters in the background. Like, I, I, we could do this in a day, right? Mm-hmm. This is not a big deal. I've said stuff like this before, Jim, on the show, and obviously I don't expect everyone to agree with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but before you write in, dear listeners, mm-hmm. let me add a couple of other points. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, some people think that Disney has a legal obligation to make as much money as possible for its shareholders. That's not true. And I refer you to the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Hobby Lobby in 2015, which says that corporations are no one under no obligation to maximize shareholder value. Two, if you think a billion dollars in pure expenses is going to break the Disney company, keep in mind that that's the production cost of basically three Avengers movies, maybe two, depending on how it goes. Or, right? Yeah. No, Jim, I mean, no, no, you're, you're, you're not wrong. <laughs> I, okay. okay. So if two Avengers films tank, mm-hmm. is the company going to go out of business? Probably not. So let me put it another way, right? Disney stock price fluctuates by around $5 billion every day, give or take. Mm-hmm. If the company's finances are so precariously balanced on knife's edge that a billion dollars in unexpected costs ruins the company, they're already doomed. The billion dollars isn't going to make a difference. And my overall point here, and I'm done with my rant, my overall point is this, that we all need to acknowledge that there are huge gaps at the corporate, state, and federal level in this country. Because we have economic crises like this every 10 to 15 years, and it seems like there's a whole bunch of people who work really, really hard and who just can't get ahead or even break even through no fault of their own. And we've now had two generations of kids, my, my kids included, right, mm-hmm. growing up with these crises. And if the best we can say to them is, this is how capitalism works in America, then we shouldn't be surprised when our kids look for something different. Yeah. I'm 61. I grew up with the belief that each generation was supposed to do better than the Do gen- better, exactly. And, you, and I'm telling you, and I did better than my parents. Yeah, but it's, it's one of these things where I look at what my daughter Alice is, is yeah, walking Yeah, what's Alice? Into. I mean, is, is Alice going to do? I mean, you look at, and I look at Hannah and I'm like, you know, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. That's troubling, man. It's troubling. Absolutely. All right, enough of that. Jim, let's do uh, listener questions. We've got some excellent questions this, year, mm. this, uh, this week from our listeners. So this one's from Devin who says, uh, we've seen lots of movement in the crowd calendar uh, lately, as can be expected with the changes brought on by COVID. Could you speak to how your teams are handling uh, adjusting crowd calendars in a post-COVID park world? So this is for for me. So yeah, Mm -hmm. Devin, um, we're doing a couple of things. One, we're looking very closely at the posted wait times for attractions. So our crowd crowd calendar touring plans are based on the posted wait times. And the thing that we've seen with the posted wait times is that they're all over the place. One is that both Universal and Orlando are having really difficult times trying to visually estimate how long a line is going to be. There's no precedent for estimating how long a line is going to be when it stretches, for example, from Jungle Cruise all the way over to Pirates of the Caribbean. They've just never seen this before, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do there is to shorten our window, the window that we use, the reference window that we use, for looking at past 
wait times in order to predict future wait times. So normally, we would look about a year, maybe two years back um, at millions and millions of wait times that we got. And we would say, you know, over the last couple of Christmases or the last couple of Thanksgivings, what were the wait times? And then combining that with everything that we know about what's coming up, rides that are closed, operational adjustments, and so on. Based on that, what would we, you know, forecast this out to be? But now that time window is is much shorter than two years because nothing today is like it was two years ago, right? So now we're looking like a month or two months back and trying to forecast that out. That's one way that we're doing it. And we're, we're constantly adjusting that. I will say over the last week, uh, especially, we've done really, really well in all the parks. Um, and hopefully that continues. The other thing that we're doing is we're still trying to, trying to give people a sense of the actual wait in line. And thank God for our lines users who are submitting hundreds of wait times a day all across Walt Disney World. That's enabling us to say, for example, hey, I know that the, the posted wait time at Big Thunder is 60 minutes. And normally, if it's 60 minutes, you'd wait 48. But in, in this particular case, a posted wait time of 60 minutes gets you an actual wait time of under 30 minutes. By the way, I love what you guys are doing on Twitter because you're getting that info out in real time. Yeah, five o'clock every day. Yeah, uh, shout out to our blog team, Julia and Danny, for yeah. for getting that out. It's fantastic stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and and in that, we're we're actually where we've got enough data to say, you know, this was the actual wait time. We're doing that too, and I think there were a couple of times in the last week where, like for the studios, for example, the studios posted wait times were some of the highest they'd been in the in a month. But if you look at the actual wait times, it really wasn't bad at all. Mm-hmm. So, Devin, that's the other thing that we're doing, and along with you know telling you what the posted wait times are. We're still trying to keep it real with the actual wait time. So hopefully that continues. And again, folks that are, um, that are using the Lines app, thank you so much for submitting those actual wait times. It's helping, it's helping keep everyone sane while we look at 120-minute wait times for a runaway railway. It's, uh, it's keeping everyone grounded. So thanks for doing that. Uh, I got another email from, this one's from DVC Family. Mm-hmm. And it says, with so much uncertainty and the long-term closing of Disneyland and revenue being limited, do you see down the road, if this trend continues, a selling of Disney hotels or a third party getting involved? And what about DVC? Can they withstand the swarm? So let's start with DVC, Jim. When DVC was launched in December of 1991, there was a very different business model in place than, than we're seeing today. And, you know, we already had a, you know, a number of resorts that, for example, Reflections, which I guess we're going to be talking about in a future show. Hold on, I, I need to pour out some of my water in memory of Reflections. Hold on. We're done. <laughs> Go ahead. But yeah, if you talk with folks at Disney, they're not talking about, should we sell off hotels? Should we get a third party involved? No, yeah, no. If anything, it's like, this is that moment of opportunity that people said would never happen. This is the Walt Disney Company that since 2006 has increased its size through acquisition. Pixar, right. Marvel, Lucasfilm. Fox, yeah. There is that master licensing agreement for Marvel for Universal, which Comcast, NBC Universal. Pretty much it's been very upfront prior to this, to the effect of mm-hmm. hell is going to freeze over before. I, I believe the, the <laughs> phrase was, was claw from my dead body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just not going to happen. But yeah. to now be in this exact situation, to now have giant corporations that are dealing with huge losses, this is the sort of thing that'll bring people to the table to do deals that you never thought possible. I mean, think about it, Len. Yeah. If six months ago, we were all hearing about Quibi. Oh, the uh, short form streaming service that Jeffrey Katzenberg started with. Would he take a billion, two billion dollars in yeah. 
two billion dollars in funding, yeah. And it's gone. Literally shutting yeah. down. That that all went away. <laughs> you could have set two billion dollars on fire. Again, yeah. this is my point, right? There's so much money in corporate America. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it's moments like this that brings people to the table to make interesting do- deals. Oh, yeah. And all I'm gonna point out is this week, I don't know if you saw any of the artwork that went out in regard to Universal Beijing. I did, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, I want you to circle back on the artwork for the Transformers land for Universal Beijing and the fact that if you squint, the giant coaster there is Hulk, and Mm -hmm. if the flat spinner ride, if you look at that, the Bumblebee Boogie, that's the storm attraction that's right next door to the Hulk. I'm just going to put that out there that as we go forward, because face it, we're seeing companies do things like, you know, for example, Universal just moved Jurassic Park Dominion to summer of 2022, which is a recognition. Oh, yeah. I heard your, uh, you you said this on another podcast of yours. Which one was it? I heard the whole story. Might have been Universal Joint. Yeah. But yeah, the whole notion, the fact that they moved that acknowledges that we don't see this world changing anytime soon. I mean, you know, just and for example, the acknowledgement just coming out of New York last week about the Broadway season getting pushed all the way. The earliest they're going to start now is May or June of 2021. People need to be aware we we may see some deals that we never thought would happen, largely because these giant corporations never th- never thought they'd be in this situation. So the the selling grandma's China phase of. Uh of economic recovery happens. I will say. You know, and I hate to say that that came at the price of laying off 28,000 employees, but it's just sort of like Disney is playing for the next couple of decades, not next week. Yeah, they've got, I mean, so to, to answer the question, I mean, Disney's got tons of assets. They have access to mm-hmm. debt and, uh, and other funding sources at, at relatively low interest rates. So mm-hmm. I checked their Moody's credit rating, I believe it was A2. Mm-hmm. So not the, not the absolute highest quality debt, but still, you know, very, very good. They can still get relatively low interest rates. Mm-hmm. They did not need to, they haven't accessed any of the federal programs around uh, corporate debt either. So, uh, so I, I mean, there's tons of opportunity for them. They're, they're going to be fine. I think DVC too, Jim, they're, um, DVC owners are considered owners. There would be assessments Oh yeah. before yeah. we, yeah, before we got to that. Yeah. So totally. that's fine. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're fine. Mm-hmm. A related question from Hunter. Mm-hmm. Now that Disney's cut many onsite benefits for resort guests during COVID. What do you think will return in the future? And what do you think we will never see again? Oh, I love this game. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim. So I'm going to, I'll read them out to you and you give me your thoughts. Extra magic hours for morning and evening. That's a gimme. That's relatively easy to do. You bump out your operating hours. You bring your staff in early. That's a turnkey. That's coming back. And it's a huge benefit for staying on site. Absolutely. I've been updating the unofficial guide for 2021 and I just finished the accommodations chapter. And one of the things that I, I do in the accommodations chapter is I look at the value proposition for Disney hotels versus offsite hotels. In in the past, like over the last couple of years, I've said that if you're looking at staying offsite, first of all, expect to pay at least $80 a night and more like 100 to 120 for a clean, safe, functional room outside of Walt Disney World. That, that's just the bare minimum. And I've told stories about places that I've tried to stay in at $50 a night that just didn't work out, right? So 80 to 120 a night, right? And if you look at Disney over the last couple of years, we've said that Pop Century, when you can get you know discounts at 120 bucks a night, Pop Century is the way to go, right? Or the all-star resorts, because you get the Magical Express, you get the extra magic hours, you get the additional fast pass 
benefit. You get the ADR benefit, stuff like that. You get the transportation and whatnot. And like, you know, even if it's ten or fifteen dollars more a night, mm-hmm. the overall benefits that you get in that package were worth it. So the question that we addressed in this year's guide was, okay, when you don't have those benefits, mm-hmm. right? When there is no extra extra magic hours, when there is no fast pass, right? Is it still worth it? So what I did was I went out and I looked at, for example, the Disney Springs Resort area hotels. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the square footage of the hotels and the onsite amenities and the cost. And I sampled it out for different dates in 2021. And I did it for a few other offsite um, hotels as well. And what I found was this. When you add in things like the resort fees and the parking fees and all the other miscellaneous you know, stuff that these resorts tack on, you're basically paying the, still the same amount for a Disney hotel versus an offsite hotel. And so the next question is, is which of them are better designed and more convenient? And again, I think in a lot of cases, the Disney hotels are better. Like a Disney value resort, especially Pop Century, which has been re- refurbished recently, or movies, which mm-hmm. has been refurbished, is reopening. I think it's better than any of the standard Disney Springs resort area hotels in virtually any hotel you're going to get for a hundred bucks a night in Kissimmee. If you talk about, for that price point, like the at $100, $150 a night. If you get to $200 a night, you're comparing like a, a Disney moderate versus, for example, like a two-bedroom, 1,200-square-foot villa at Marriott Harbor Lake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could, I, you know, th- then we're talking about two different things, right? But I still think that you can make a case for Disney stuff. And that's why I think extra magic hours are coming back because once they come back to your point, it becomes a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. To stay, like I just went on for two minutes explaining why I think Disney's still a good value. But if extra magic hours come back, I just say extra magic hours, and the conversation's over in five seconds. So yeah, I think it's coming back. What about Magical Express luggage delivery baggage check at the hotels? Uh, not until we have a vaccine, and even then, probably a year or more after that point. The notion of you don't have any idea of who's handled your luggage. Oh, got it. Okay, okay. I th- see. I thought this was just like staff cutting, but okay. But it's a safety thing. All yeah, right, fair enough. So. so I'll skip the the third one and start with 180 day ADRs. Disney has loved the money they get from having to put the paying down well in advance to go to be our guest or Cinderella's Royal Table. Yeah. By the way, let's let's throw in here dining plans along with ADRs. So, yeah, because uh, I think they go hand in hand, right? You can't have dining plans without ADRs. Yeah. But they know from guest surveys this is a huge point of frustration for people who come to Walt Disney World to the effect of, I want to get in there. And it's like, well, you should have made that reservation a half year ago. (laughs) Especially in a world where we live in our phones and it's like, why can't I get in there? I have my phone. If you let me know, I could come instantly. So I am hearing that. They would like to use this, what's going on right now, as another opportunity to make a run at this and maybe try to reinvent Disney dining to reflect 2020, 2021. When you've had that monkey on your back, and don't get me wrong, there's there's people at Disney who love that monkey. (laughs) The monkey, that monkey comes with its own uh, suitcase full of cash. That's right. You know, so it's like, (laughs) we love this monkey. monkey. Yeah. Let's do a whole circus. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just kind of interesting to watch Disney in this moment try to think, okay, we we can take advantage of this. We can reinvent in this moment, you know, and when we come back, we live in today's world as opposed to what yeah. we set up back in the early 2000s. So, 
Right. I think the the reason why they're not bringing back dining packages is they don't have the physical capacity yet mm-hmm. at the restaurants. Oh, yeah. The sit-down restaurants that are operating right now are operating at roughly one-third capacity. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of friends who came back last week and were amazed at how few people were in the restaurants. And I, the uh, the counter service places, the quick service places are operating at about the same level. I think I told the story on the show a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. of I made a mistake and, and tried to eat at Pecos Bills at 1230 mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And every single table at Pecos Bills, and I'm not exaggerating, every table was occupied and every table at Tortuga Tavern wow. was occupied. And, and, and so that's it, right? They've mm-hmm. hit capacity. Mm-hmm. What needs to happen then is, it, and this is sort of a chicken and egg thing, mm-hmm. Disney needs to see a little bit more attendance so they can open up a couple more restaurants, which would then give you the capacity eventually, if they do that enough times, to start offering some limited ADRs and some limited dining plans. And not to completely circle back on where we started today, but if you think about those six thousand families that you're, you know, going oh no, to, yeah, yeah, no, we're gonna we're gonna see. I think, and I'm I'm calling it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're gonna see ADRs in some sort of line management system before February 9th. Okay. has to happen. Makes so sense. the next one uh, that Hunter said was FastPass Plus. Mm-hmm. So his question specifically is, if FastPass Plus returns in some form, is it pay-to-play? Will it be a pay-to-play service? So <laughs> let me let me just, let, I'll give you my thing here and you can riff on it. Okay. If they do virtual queues, mm-hmm. like we saw the test at Jungle Cruise, my friend Matthew did, and at Millennium Falcon, then yeah, I think you're going to see FastPass come back as pay. So you'll get virtual queue the one virtual queue at a time mm-hmm. will be the new version of FastPass and then pay for FastPass will be the new thing. I think that's the that's step one, step two. My only concern with that is that Disney's had the, you know, <laughs> can we? I, I know where you're going. This is this will be the third line management system that they introduced in seven years. Yeah. I know, I know. I know. Like, could could we get the people who run the parks not to act like caffeinated squirrels in traffic? Because that would be that would be fabulous. Yeah. Right? The only people that are that would be happy to see yet another line management system would be the graphic designers who have to redo all of the informational material that Disney hands out to people because they're like, this is a job for life at this point. Yeah. We're in the money. Let's just see what happens here. All right. One last question from Joe TV. Mm-hmm. I got to subscribe. I wish you guys would give an update on what happened with The Void at Disney Springs. It's so sad that it closed. Man, I love The Void. I think, remember when uh, when I went for the first time and I was like, I, I think I, I said literally like if I was younger, I would change the direction of the company to do this. I mm. thought it was amazing. It is the future of themed entertainment. But <sighs> to start its ramp up and then encounter a pandemic. Yeah. And that's the thing. The, the Void is a high touch experience. You're slinging on backpacks that everyone else has worn. Yeah. And you're holding the faux guns that you use in the attraction and that sort of thing. I mean, there's just from a cleaning point of view and, and a yeah, safety point of view. Yeah, too much. Yeah. When there's a vaccine, this is still a brilliant business. The problem is, in much the same way as Quibi, can you survive till yeah. the world changes? And in the case of Quibi, no, we can't. I'm just hoping that the folks behind the void have enough cash in hand and yeah. can get other investors on board to that when the world goes back to what it was, this is great. 
could have this anywhere and have amazing experiences. So I think the good news from the Void's perspective is that their major cost has to, besides employees, has to be the leases that they have on those buildings. And I know they had one in Times Square yeah. and they had places elsewhere. And hopefully their um, landlords are being flexible about, mm-hmm. about payment there. Because I, I think that technology is fabulous. I think the stories that they've come up with are compelling. Mm-hmm. I think the operations, they were getting sort of their their feet under them. It was, you know, getting people in and out of the door mm-hmm. was going pretty well. And we advocated for it. Like I, I said, it was, you know, one of the best new things mm-hmm. in Walt Disney World a couple of years ago. Still is. So I hope those, uh, hope those guys succeed. Yep. Yeah. All right, Jim, let's do a couple of uh, uh, surveys before we uh, go into our, our main segment here. So our friend Chris sent in a DVC survey with mm-hmm. this question. And Jim, I want to get your take on it. The entire question was was this. During this visit to the Walt Disney World Resort, did you experience any of the following miniature golf courses? Uh, Disney's Fantasia Gardens, Disney Fantasia Fairways, another course off Disney property, or I didn't experience any miniature golf courses on this trip. So if there's another way, if I could, if I could paraphrase this question, Jim, mm-hmm. the question is, how much money should we think this the particular corner of, of World Drive is worth next to the Swan and Dolphin? <laughs> Is that how I'm interpreting the question? Is that correct, the way that I'm interpreting that question, Jim? Well, you know, the, the most interesting <laughs> part of that, notice that there is absolutely no mention of Disney's Winter Summerland. Winter Summerland, yeah. Because, well, it's not open right now, but yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah. we're not concerned about that piece of real estate. It's this chunk <laughs> next to, uh, is it still the Cove or, no, wait, they, we changed it's, the name. It's uh, the Swan Reserve. Reserve. There we go. Yeah. And we reserve the right to, to totally <laughs> to demolish the place next door. There we go. <laughs> And that's, I mean, that uh, I still have concerns about whether the architecture is going to blend in and, and how people are going to get across that street. Mm. Um, but that's that's looking more promising than it was there. Yeah, I think Disney's got to look at that and say, is miniature golf really the best the best way we can generate revenue there? Because if you think about where that is, mm-hmm. right across from Hollywood Studios and a short walk to Epcot. That is. I mean, Magic Kingdom real estate is prime real estate, but that's got to be, you know, USDA choice right there. That's great stuff. Remember the whole conceit of this hotel. It's for folks who previously stayed at the Dolphin and the Swan and want something a bit more upscale, a bit more modern that's still accessible to the convention center. Right, right. It's the strategy that Disney used with Grand Destino, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, you could put the executives in the Swan and Dolphin, but you could put them over here too. You put your executive in the, the up-to-date modern reserve building, and he's now looking out at the soon-to-be 30-year-old miniature golf course that has seen better days. And it's just sort of like, all right, this is the wrong visual message to be sending next to our supposedly hotel for elites. Oh. If you're a Fantasia Gardens fan, next time you're at a resort, go play. because I'm, I'm going over this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Might want to make that Friday as opposed to Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Bring a camera. Is that what you're saying, Jim? <laughs> there we go. All right. One last uh, survey. Our friend David uh, sent in this one, uh, and it's related to DVC. Once each of the following reopens, which best describes when you will likely visit or experience one? And the categories or the responses are, as soon as it reopens, regardless of whether new health and safety precautions have been implemented or as soon as they reopen, assuming proper health and safety precautions are implemented, or only after COVID-19 treatments are widely available, or only after a COVID vaccine becomes available. And the last answer that you could give is, I'll never visit no matter what. So the categories are theme parks, 
So uh, are you going to uh, go as soon as they reopen, regardless of whether there's health and safety, or do you need health and safety, or do you need a vaccine or what? So that's one. U.S. beaches and shores is interesting. And by the way, uh, if I'm reading the the question behind the question here, it's really Disney saying, what things do I do I have to either emphasize or keep track of or compete with when it comes to U.S. destination preferences? Uh-huh. Oh, and let me pause here, by the way. I was reading a paper, an academic paper somewhere, and I forget which one, but it was saying, it was arguing that one of the reasons why Disney put white sand beaches with palm trees around the Magic Kingdom Lagoon, around Seven Seas Lagoon, is because they did surveys of people and they asked them, you know, what mental image do you come up with when we say Florida? And the two top two responses were white sand beaches and palm trees. So that Disney could, Disney put those in so they could feature them in the ads and people would associate it with Florida. Wow. Genius. Genius. All right. So theme parks, U.S. beaches, international river cruises. And I would would have said, Jim, if you would have told me 10 years ago Mm. that international river cruises was going to start showing up as an option on Disney surveys, Mm. I would have been like, how far down the rabbit hole have they gone? But I think they see this as the next big adjunct to Disney Cruise Line. Like if you told me, Maybe not this year, but if you told me in five years that Disney will own its own set of river cruise boats, I would be like, yes, that totally makes sense because of what they're doing. That's a market that's primed for, you know, face it, you have all these people who have done Disney cruises at this point, you know, who like to go through the fleet and, you know, to, yep. to have this as me, an offering. I, I'm literally the person you're talking about. Like yep. I'm, yep. I, I've been on all the ships. I've done almost all the itineraries. I'm ready for something new. Mm-hmm. So the next two are U.S. and international group guided tours. And it doesn't say in parentheses here, Adventures by Disney, but mm-hmm. that's what they mean, right? That's it. Uh, multi-day ocean cruises and then U.S. hotels. So all of that's directly related to, uh, to Disney resorts, I would think, yeah. except for U.S. beaches or shores. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, David, thank you for sending that, uh, that in. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us the history of the Wonders of Life Pavilion. Last Monday mm-hmm. was the 31st anniversary of the opening of the Wonders of Life Pavilion. And that's really hard to believe because, number one, it's been closed almost as long as it was opened. Uh, and there's a there's an entire generation of kids mm-hmm. who haven't been able to vomit on body wars <laughs> like my sister and I did growing up. And that hurts me a little bit, Jim. It hurts me a little bit. <laughs> well, By the way, uh, to, to prep for the show, I watched um, our friend Martin Smith's uh, wonderful, wonderful YouTube video on the history uh, of Wonders of Life. I recommend this for everyone. Just go look it up. Um, if you're on YouTube and you Google uh, Wonders of Life, Martin's vids, mm-hmm. uh, it'll come up. It's fast. It's fast, fascinating. The one thing I will say about that is, Martin on his videos, you know, goes through the whole development cycle for all these attractions, starting with, you know, the earliest concepts. And it seems like, it seems like wonders of life, like the idea of a, of a health related pavilion was pretty much baked into Epcot from the start, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you, you go back to when the Epcot future world theme center was initially announced back in July of 1975, it was right there, but the Epcot Center Healthcare Exhibit 
wasn't going to be located. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Sorry, I, I, I momentarily dozed off as you said those words. That's how boring it sounds. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. This is the problem. <laughs> they thought this was going to be a gimme. There's so many, whether it's pharmaceutical companies or outfits that do HMOs or that sort of thing. It's like, this is a gimme. Someone's going to step up immediately and want to do this. So they didn't even initially bundle it in future world, uh, the future world theme centers, science and technology pavilion. It's actually over in the community pavilion. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. With, yeah. with the, you're bundled with economics and education. So again, they doubled down and made it even more boring, Len. I'm trying to figure out what a ride based on double entry bookkeeping would look like. <laughs> That's right. I think, our, I think our friends over at Podcast the Ride need to, need to look at this. Well, remember, we've seen you know, when they brought Jiminy in to try to service the host of All right. the energy pavilion. So got to wonder which character it's like, come along in the wonderful world of economics. And Scrooge McDuck, got to be. <laughs> Scrooge okay. McDuck, it's got to be. It's okay. Right. okay. <laughs> So anyway, so 75, they start walking around and they get this world of no. Everybody's like, oh God, no. <laughs> so they start tweaking their pitch as they go along. So 75 gives way to 76. Future World section of Epcot comes a bit more sharply into focus. In fact, in the annual report, you know, it's, it's like they, they mentioned that guests who go to this will be able to experience and learn about the future of energy, health and medicine, oceanography, space, agriculture, nutrition, communications, transport and topics. And I want to point out, Len, in this pitch, health and medicine is number two behind energy. They, they now know right. if we're going to land sponsorship for this, we need to be upfront about this. So they reach out to potential sponsors, uh, or as they called them then, participating companies. By 77, the Imagineers have locked in on a concept. It, it's now what they're pitching to the companies is, is the Life and Health Pavilion. And this is how it's described in the annual report. Visitors to the Life and Health Pavilion will experience a new awareness and appreciation of themselves. The Joy of Living, a multimedia show, will explore the beauty, the dignity, and the strength of man from birth to the golden years. The incredible journey within will take guests to explore the inner workings of the fascinating, complex human machine. And then okay. along the great midway of life, they'll participate in a whimsical series of experiences, learning that good health is based more than anything else on their own personal responsibility and behavior. Mm. Joy of living is the Martin the Short. Making of me. Yeah, making yeah, of me. Making of me. Yeah. Uh, likewise, the great midway of life is go think about health, the sensory fun house, the, where the anatomical yeah. players... The Incredible Journey Within is just Body Wars at a far slower pace. <laughs> body Wars without the plot. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I would imagine Martin must have had artwork of the first iteration of this as a giant ride-through. You're yep. in a blood cell, and you're you know, supposedly yep. moving along the bloodstream. They had this concept locked as early as 1977. That's five years before Epcot opens. So why is it that we had to wait till October of 89? That's seven years after Disney World's second gates opened, before we even get a Wonders of Light pavilion. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's 12 years. Yep. We can go to Marty Scalar, the then president of Walt Disney Imagineering, who said, yeah, in many ways, Epcot's Wonders of Light pavilion was much more controversial than any of the topics we built future world's pavilions around. Really? You would think it would have been more controversial than energy or agriculture. Remember, energy is like solar. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. but please disregard solar. Uh, but Marty goes on to say, largely because theories about healthcare and how you manage your own body have changed a lot over the 14 years that we've been since we first started this project. So we talked about how when we worked on this thing, we put people together from related fields, medical people, academics, potential sponsors, 
And when put them together, it was real. There were real sparks. It was real friction. They just couldn't get on the same page. And, and part of that is there are, in, in the way the U.S. healthcare is set up, there are a lot of those discussions are basically zero sum games, mm-hmm. right? That if academics or you know governments move in one direction, it generally means less money mm-hmm. for pharmaceuticals or insurance, right? So that's just the way the system is set up. So so I can see that. And then the other thing too is. Um, you know the work that I've done on the on the diabetes side for software. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of the way that healthcare is set up is you get these weird perverse incentives mm-hmm. where companies companies make more money the sicker people are, uh, and it doesn't happen a lot. Mm-hmm. And and the vast majority of companies that I've 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 talked to basically take the position that that's not how they're going to make their money, mm-hmm. right? But not every company, I will say. Mm-hmm. Um, has that enlightened view. So I, I totally get that. And that's different than like agriculture, right? So like spending money on more fertilizer mm-hmm. doesn't result in less money for other groups. I mean, you could argue that, you know, there's runoff and there's other environmental impacts, but the thing that sponsors understand is dollars. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. So when you've got a bunch of groups together, and you say, we're going to present this, right? Everyone's looking at how that affects their dollars. And you don't get that in, in, in the other, the other pavilions. That's so Marty decides that what he's going to go do uh, middle East peace instead. Cause that's easier. <laughs> well, no, he, he keeps plugging <laughs> away. There's getting the sponsor to the table, but then there's also the incredible journey within so we're trying to do this ride-through experience. And so he, again, I've got this interview from 89 where when we were developing this direction that we take guests on a ride through the human body, we immediately came up against what the, the real limits of technology were at that time. By that, I mean, it's one thing to make a concept painting of a red blood cell full of people passing through an oversized lung. Right. And then you can build the model for the scene and, you know, the proposed attraction. But now you have to figure out actually how to move these giant set pieces. And it's like... That sectional lung I was just talking about, in the real world, in the incredible journey within, that would have been huge. 30 feet high. And it would have had to have moved continuously, 18 hours a day, 365 days a year. A lung. A lung. Going, uh, breathing in and out. There. 30 feet high. So it's basically a room that can, uh, expands and contracts. No, that's it exactly. And, yeah, and from an engineering point of view, you can't even get to imagine how difficult, ponderous, and expensive that's going to be to build this for your proposed marquee attraction for the life and health. said... We scared off so many would-be sponsors for this, this future world pavilion when we told them how much it was going to cost to build and then maintain the incredible journey within. That's why this pavilion sat on the shelf for so long. It wasn't until we hit upon the idea of using the simulator as a result of the success of Star Tours that this pavilion finally became viable. One of the reasons the Star Tours was a success right out of the box was that people already knew the world of Star Wars. You know, as they entered the attraction. So much in that show building that people could instantly recognize, they, they felt immediately at ease and could quickly settle into the story that, that would set up in the pre-show. Body Wars didn't have that luxury. Uh, the Imagineers had this to establish the backstory of the Miniaturization Exploration Technologies Corporation. By the way, Met, if you're doing the initials, and coincidentally, Met Life sponsors the building. What, what a coincidence, yep. Len! Huh, sometimes it works out like that, Jim. There you go. But again, you only have that time that people are in line to establish this world and the pre-show. What the Imagineers were trying to nail down with for the Miniaturization Technologies Corporation, well, first of all, this is set 
2063. So some 43 yeah. years in the future. Oh, so but but like seven, almost 80 years, 75 years in the future from when it was first. Uh, oh yeah, 88. Uh, was first 88. Yep. So I actually have mm. through uh, through a generous donation mm. from somebody in the uh, Walt Disney World Imagineering uh, section. I have all of the background announcements that were played. Oh no! During Body War, so like the the different groups that were loading, mm-hmm. you know, like all the different sort of like doctors' offices, yep, yep, yep. notices that you heard in the back. I have all of them, and I got to say, so it's 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 like an hour mm-hmm. of background stuff, and I'm. I'm not joking here when I say I think all of them, because mm-hmm. they all use like numbers. Yep. You know, will Dr. Anna mm-hmm. please report to Bay 12765? It's basically all everybody who worked on the ride doing a shout out to their kids. Because <laughs> if you if you look at all the numbers, mm-hmm. virtually all the numbers that they announce could be dates. Oh, and birthdays. And it's it's oh. just great. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, hey, we need some background noise here. Mm-hmm. What are we gonna do to make it sound all sciencey and doctory? Yeah. We're going to do this. It's kind of great. If you went on Alien Encounter, the vibe from when you walked in the building, the architecture, the announcements, the the soundtrack, it all hammered a story to the effect of these people are putting profit above safety. We shouldn't trust what they're doing. It's stepping into a dangerous situation. With Body Wars, they wanted the exact opposite thing. They wanted the sense that these people were capable, and God help, if anything went wrong, they would move heaven and earth to save us. So Eisner's in the pitch meeting with the Imagineers when they're, they're talking about trying to nail down the feel and the look of of Body Wars. And it's like, yeah, you know, the people who work here, they should feel like Starfleet. And Eisner's response was, I know the perfect guy to direct our, our pre-show film, and that's Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> I'm just gonna call. I'm just gonna call Leonard Nimoy. See what he's doing next week. I always forget he's a, he was a director. Yeah, yeah. yeah and more to the point that he and Eisner went way back because you can remember in '79 they made Star Trek: The Motion Picture. But what ended up happening was that Nimoy wanted to put Spock in the rearview mirror. In fact, in 1975, he actually wrote his autobiography that was called "I Am Not Spock." But then in 77, Star Wars comes out and every studio in Hollywood wants to make a sci-fi movie. And so Eisner's in charge of Paramount at the time. He actually sends Katzenberg to New York where in an effort to put Spock in the rearview mirror, Nimoy's on Broadway doing Equus. And the Star Trek, the motion picture is moving forward without Spock. And so Jeffrey Katzenberg's job is basically to go backstage, I think it was at the Lund Fontaine, and just keep piling up money till Nimoy said yes. <laughs> Let me know when this when this stack of money is high enough for you. Yeah. Yeah. Nimoy finally caves, you know, goes back to California, shoots Star Trek the motion picture, makes enough money, they decide they're going to make a sequel, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. And Nimoy had explained to Katzenberg and, and Eisner, this is a one and done. I came back, I did the character, you got mo- your movie. And so, well, Leonard, we'd really love you to come back, you know, to do Wrath of Khan. And he's like, all right, I'll only come back if you kill Spock. So I never have to play the character <sighs> again. They agreed to his condition and 82 Wrath of Khan comes out, makes more money than God. More to the point, Leonard Nimoy has fun making this Star Trek movie as opposed to- Oh, yeah, because he's like, oh, I'm done here. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna have a laugh at this. Yeah. Yeah, but that makes so much money, they want to make another sequel. And so Eisner, <laughs> once again, goes to Leonard that's like, look- He's like, here's a bunch of money. I want you to think about this money and then define the word dead yeah. as it was previously used <laughs> yes. in reference to- Spock. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but to give Leonard credit, it's like, well, I don't want money this time. It's like, oh, what do you want? I want to direct. Or, okay. 
Sure. Okay. And (laughs) they set up the movie. It comes out the summer of 84, does very well. But of course, in 1984, Michael Eisner is on his way out the door to go be in charge of Disney. But, you know, he watches Leonard work. He's very impressed by the fact that, you know, he's, he's not a particularly wasteful guy. He's very efficient. He gets the movie they need at the price they need, on the schedule they need. He does everything a director's supposed to do, right? Okay, so it's it's 1986 now, and okay. Disney has just acquired the rights to redo a very popular uh, film from France. I'll mangle the title, so we'll just call it what they called it in America, the Three Men and a Baby. I've heard of it. Yes, right. but the thing is that Disney has a falling out with the director of the original French film. He was supposed to direct the American version. So he walks out the door, and it's like, I need a director. Wait, Leonard Nimoy directed Three Men and a Baby? He directed Three Men and a Baby for Disney. Did he really? He did. And in fact, Eisner calls him on Thanksgiving. It's like, hey, you doing anything the, the next couple of months? Because I got a situation. Leonard gets on a plane, flies up to uh, Toronto where they're going to shoot, takes a look at the set, takes a look at the script, meets the cast. It's like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And it's Disney's first blockbuster. Oh, yeah. I saw it in theaters. Yeah. No, it still holds up, by the way. You you still cry in the exact same places, you know, that you always did. Wait, so it was was Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck, Ted Danson, and... Steve Gutenberg? Yes. There we go. Steve Gutenberg. Yeah. But it's in post- so Nimoy's on the lot. We're going to work in on the thing when Eister has this meeting about body wars. And it's like, well, hang on. Let me call Leonard. And it's just sort of like, hey, how would you, you know, you do, you've done the Star Trek thing. Let me explain what we want to do with this ride film. And Leonard's flattered, actually. You know, just the whole notion of, well, cool. Yeah. All right. I, I'll, I'll do yeah. that. I mean, it sounds like a challenge too, right? I mean, it's one thing to direct a 90 minute movie or whatever, mm-hmm. two hour movie, right? But yeah. when you got to condense everything down into an eight-minute ride. Oh, right? yeah. Every second counts. He delivered the goods, and more to the point, they kept him on the lot, and that during this entire time, Eisner was trying to get him to commit to direct uh, Three Men and a Baby 2. And unfortunately, Leonard was not up for that, and they never were able to close that deal. But in the end, again, that this is why, if you look at the Body Wars films today, there's a reason they have the Starfleet vibe. That's all Leonard Nimoy right there. So I'm going to go back and look at the uh, the video on in YouTube. I think our listeners too mm-hmm. should. Let's, let's go back and, and look at the video for Body Wars mm. because we're not all going to get motion sick while we're watching it. Let's all let's all see how the the movie itself stacks up today. Like, is it still a compelling story? You know, is it better or worse than we thought it was? Let's do that and let's uh let's ask our listeners to uh, to to write in. And tell us what they think of the movie now. And remember, years later. check out the, the, the pre-show stuff in addition to the film. because And, the, and the pre-show stuff. Too, and, yeah. and more to the point, look out for that cut in the lung. <laughs> the thing that would have been a giant set. You're, you're going to see a moment in, in the ride film where there is clearly a cut. They cut out, I want to say, 15 seconds in the actual ride film of your vehicle pitching back and forth as you're in the lung. And... I don't want to say that's what made you and Chrissy sick, but you know, yeah. that's a fairly infamous scene in the attraction. So I, th- I think uh, Martin said something about that in his, uh, in his video as well, that it was like a, some sort of test and adjust to not make people sick. There you go. Wow. So great story, Jim. Glad to do it. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including new in park audio and a special series on the Disneyland Circus. On next week's regular show, what Buzz Lightyear 
and other Disney ride-through Target gallery games means for Disneyland's upcoming Spider-Man attraction. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's doing the ribbon cutting at the grand opening of the Greenbrier Junction Model Railroad at 12 p.m. on Saturday, November 23rd at the North House Museum as part of the annual Lewisburg Holiday Festival in beautiful downtown Lewisburg, West Virginia. While Aaron's doing that, please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.